Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. And the topics discussed are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. What's up? <laughs> I am Justin Burt, joined tonight by our outstanding guest, Dr. Allison Agub, uh, to discuss the care of children and adolescents with HIV. We also have returning producer, Dr. Martha Brucato with us. Martha, how are things going? Uh, excellent. Um, it's an exciting time thinking about next steps in the career. Very excited to have you. I know you have a bright future ahead of you and congratulations. Uh, I think we can, I hope it's okay to make it public because otherwise it's very silly, but congratulations on bringing a new uh, Brucato into the world uh, shortly. Yeah. Uh, very excited for you. Before we uh, come up with naming uh, Martha's new child, and before we get into some pearls about HIV, Chris, yes. can you tell us what we do on this show? Sure. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation tonight with Dr. Agu. She's an associate professor of pediatric and adult infectious diseases at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She leads the Young Adult Transitions Clinic, the Accessing Early Care or ACE Clinic. Her research interests include optimizing outcomes, management and treatment strategies for youth who are at risk for and living with HIV, and minimizing disparities in the use of ART and outcomes for individuals living with HIV. She's one of the authors of the new 2020 IDSA HIV Medicine Association Primary Care Guidelines for Persons Living with HIV. Tonight, she teaches us about neonatal diagnosis, explaining treatment to families, diagnosing acute retroviral syndrome, initiating PrEP, so very much more. It's incredible. You guys are going to enjoy this one. You're going to get prepped for HIV care. Nice, you did it. <laughs> A not inappropriate HIV pun. Strong work. Well, so, so thank you so much for, for joining the show. Uh, we're grateful to have you. And we'd love to start off by getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, and so can, can I ask, can you give us a little bit of a one-liner or just a description of yourself for the audience and our listeners? Sure. So I'm Allison Agu. I'm MedPeds ID, aka quadruply bored crazy person, a mom to an 11 and 13-year-old, an HIV doc, and an advocate. Happy to be with you guys today. Amazing. Awesome. So the first question I like to ask is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? My favorite failure is when I did not get into the MedPeds residency that I wanted to get into. I was clear I was going to UNC, was it, oh, this you know, MedPeds program, I was going to get in, and I didn't get in. And I was devastated. I got into Case Western. It was their second year of a MedPeds residency. And I was like, I'm not going to make it. I don't know what's going to happen. And it was actually the best thing that happened. I ended up in this MedPeds program that was new, which meant that I could totally, along with my partner in crime, Sad Friedlander, and um, we could shape it the way we wanted to. They listened to us. They responded to us. And uh, I did international health and MedPeds and MedPeds HIV stuff. And wow. I look back and, you know, I, I trained under Grace McComsey and Shandy John, some of these giants in MedPeds. And I would never had 
had that, not that I would have been bad if I went to UNC, but my launching pad was very different in that failure. And so I use that for myself when I think I should do something and something else happens, but for my kids and fellows and residents that sometimes what you want and what you need are two very different things and not being afraid to just let it be. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. What a timely anecdote yes. for, for the week of uh, match week. It's true, right? You open that envelope and it's like, what? <laughs> right? But it That's is what great. it is, right? Something that I've been really pondering as we're reaching the year anniversary of a lot of these big markers of what have changed our lives is um, what are the things that we're going to carry forward? And what do you think the good and the bad, the things that have kind of changed our practice from the pandemic and what will you bring with you? So I think in terms of... Um, practice. And I, I take care of a lot of young people who live with HIV or at risk for HIV. And I've been saying for years that we've got to meet people where they are, right? And not, you know, be so rigid about our spaces and, and deeming people failures if they don't come into our spaces. And the pivot, not to use the overused word of the pandemic, but the pivot to telemedicine and to be thinking and utilizing other aspects of, of communicating with people, I think, is one thing I absolutely, from a clinical perspective, want to take forward. Even if it's just giving people options, because some people, a lot of people still want to come in, but boy, if you can't come in or if you just want to touch base um, in a different way, it's so nice to see the whole profession of medicine thinking, how do we get people in, however in is. And so I, I hope we take that with us um, moving forward and we reimburse it appropriately and we do what we need to do to maintain that. That's probably the biggest thing. Our practice has struggled a little bit, but I think we've definitely made it a little bit easier. And uh, I think patients are appreciative. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, they, I, I, I'm always careful to make it seem like it's the only way to go, right? It's, it's, I think it needs to be part of a package of things we offer people because particularly in HIV care, you know, not everybody has done great, right? The, the quote unquote pivot to telemedicine was not good for everybody. And so it's, it shouldn't be that one size fits all. It's that there needs to be an option for you in that package. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely found that in, in our practice, you know, we take care of a lot of underserved populations yeah. and, you know, they can't, most of the time they don't even have telephones that work, let alone like Wi-Fi or ability to do like a telemedicine appointment. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. But I, you know, you'll be surprised, you know, the penetration of smartphones, if particularly in the indices, et cetera, is it, it's almost a necessity where you don't have a landline, you don't have a computer. And so understanding what people have, and that should be part of our intakes. It's what do you have access to, et cetera. And then yeah. we should think about how we supplement people if they don't have that, right? Because it is necessity. And I recognize this is different depending on where you practice, rural, et cetera, et cetera, right? Which is why I'm saying it should be part of our package and not the only way we go. Absolutely. Yeah, let's um, let's break into some content. How about uh, Martha, do you want to get us started and start going through some cases? Absolutely. So we're at Cashlack Children's Hospital. Uh, a 38 and zero week gestational age, uh, baby girl is born to a 28 year old mother um, living with HIV who has an undetectable viral load on ART. Um, and we want to start from the basics and build up from there. Um, what is HIV? What are the HIV categories? Where does she fit into our understanding? Yeah. So she's a 28 year old and you said she's been HIV positive for how long? 
That's a, a great question that I did not put into the STEM. So if her mom has been positive, say, for 10 years. Yeah. So, I mean, without knowing her CD4 and viral load, let's step back a second. So HIV, so human immunodeficiency virus, um, it's not the same as AIDS. You know, that there we, we have to start there, which is acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Um, and so it's a virus that causes essentially an impact on your immune system. It does exactly that. It attacks your immune system. And if left unabated, so unabated meaning untreated or without antiretroviral medications, which decreases and minimizes your viral load, which is the number of copies of virus and virions per teaspoon of blood, that over time can lead to destruction of your CD4 cells or your main defenders of your body and, and lead you at risk for developing AIDS-defined illnesses like pneumocystis pneumonia or certain AIDS and cancers, et cetera. So that's, that's why I make that distinction. And so this young lady has been positive for 10 years on antiretroviral therapy. Assuming she's taking her medicines, you said she had an undetectable viral load. She could be just like anybody else with a normal immune system, right? So if a virus is under control, she's able to carry pregnancy to term, she's more likely than not going to have a baby that is negative. And we could talk a little bit about that um, because you can, can pass, if the mom was not on antiretroviral treatment, you can pass that virus from mom to baby pretty effectively. But this mom sounds like she did everything that she was to do. She took her medicine, she was undetectable, and now she's delivering a little, a little baby. Did I get all those questions? Is that... <laughs> Yeah. Um, and something that I just like in preparing for this talk was reading through the um, categories of HIV in terms of how we think about and kind of um, stratify our patients and their risk. That was something that was new to me. Yeah. So I, try, you know, there's a CDC cut A1, A, B, C, one, two, and I try not to focus too much. And I'll tell you why. I really think that they make you, they make you you fix it in a number. And then once you're AIDS defined or category C, then you stay that for the rest of your life, even though your CD4 is a thousand and you're doing well. So I, I really, I honestly don't like to use them. Were you, were you looking for the CDC ones? Absolutely. Yeah. Like the A, B and C, which I had never um, seen it broken down in that way, that like asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic. I hate those. But if the expert doesn't think they're worth it, then the primary care doctor, they are gone. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's easy enough for me. I, <laughs> I think for me, the most important thing for me is what is their CD, CD4, right? So what's a CD4? Because that tells me that they're at a, a range where I need to be concerned about opportunistic infections. I need to be concerned that they're going to progress from an immunologic standpoint and be at risk for something terrible. Right. So that's that's I, their viral load is controlled or not controlled. That tells me I need to do some work because if I can get the viral load controlled, then I will affect the CD4, which ultimately decreases their risk for opportunistic infections and sequelae. Right. So that's how I think about them. And so to get at what you're at, there's N are not symptomatic. There is A, which is mildly symptomatic, um, where you may have some subtle things, right? Lymph lymphadenopathy, or you may just have some splenomegaly. Um, there's moderately symptomatic, where you may have, people may have shingles, or they may have, you know, recurrent um, HSV stomatitis, and things that you say, well, my immune system is not exactly right. And then there's C, severely symptomatic. Again, with your CD4 being, if your CD4 is 200, you have recurrent, you know, vaginitis, or, you know, I know that you're severely impacted. So I don't like to put use necessarily those. It's the, the, the data tells me the same thing. I don't necessarily label people with the categories. And can I ask, before uh, jumping too much, because I think we, sure. we should start with neonatal experience, but I think this is a good time to ask, what is the time course of a patient that has HIV 
and in pediatrics, if they go untreated, do we start expecting their CD4 to drop off in a year, two years, 30 years? What's the disease uh, illness progress uh, script? Yeah, so I think that that's that's a, a great question, and I my medpeds had literally the spectrum I'll take you through. So for neonatal H, HIV, we knew very early from the share trial and some of the data that was was done in earlier in HIV that the earlier you get kids on treatment, the better they do. First kids identified with HIV were in 1982, right? That article came out I think in 1983, and by the time the article in pediatrics came out, 50% of those kids were already dead. Right, so there's a rapid decline in terms of um, risk of death or rapid risk of death for for infants born with HIV, which is why we knew get them on treatment because that changes. So before we were doing treat everyone, we knew we needed to treat infants because they're 50% were dead by a year. Another percentage of those were dead by five years of age. So really high, high risk. One thing that oftentimes confuses people is the CD4 count in, in kids is actually higher. It's artificially higher, right? Just by the way the immune system is. So they'll have CD4 counts of, you know, an that's 2,500. Oh, they're actually okay. Actually, they're not okay. They're actually well on their way to being severely immunocompromised. So it's about getting them on antiretroviral treatment as early as possible. And we use Bactrim early for kids to protect against PCP, which many of these kids died from. So good question. Now, once they sort of get to five years of age, et cetera, and they've survived, now you're looking at kids that maybe have some little bit of immunologic resiliency, et cetera. They're not the ones that died right away. Um, but over time, they sort of percolate along and more and more of them become AIDS-defined and then uh, progress to illness if we don't intervene with antiretroviral therapy. Um, I talked about the initial uh, article that came out, I think, in 1983. And at that point, they reported on kids up to 13, and some had been diagnosed, perinatally acquired, all the way out to age 13, meaning they had not been on treatment, et cetera, and they were sort of found in their practices or however they presented to care and diagnosed later in life. And so when I talk to the residents or the fellows, I always talk about having that index of suspicion for HIV. So not this, not this baby, it's a great mom, et cetera. That's great. Let's make sure we get the HIV test. Kid comes in with parotid enlargement or something else. And you're like, I don't quite understand why they have lymphadenopathy, et cetera, but it can't be HIV. Not the right kid, not the right mom. You'd be surprised, right? So don't ever take it off your list. You know, if you're thinking immune, immune compromised, something's awry, the HIV test should be there. And just remember that article, well, all the way out to 13, we've diagnosed 18-year-olds and actually perinatal HIV. No one talked about it. Oh, yeah, mom did die of that thing. She did look. Nobody talked about it, particularly with the stigma. So not to take it off your list. So thinking about um, this baby girl who's been born um, to this mom who has an undetectable viral load, um, what's the probability of perinatal acquisition in this scenario? Yeah. And how does it change if her mom has a detectable viral load? Sure. So this baby with mom, and I, I didn't hear, and you, you probably didn't tell me, but let's say this mom had been on antiretroviral treatment when she got pregnant and was undetectable throughout her pregnancy, right? And now is delivering this baby in a setting of an undetectable viral load. This baby's risk of HIV acquisition is essentially zero. It's less than 1%. It's almost zero. It's, it's rare that we have a baby that's positive with this scenario. This is like the ideal. You know, mom durably suppressed, baby doing, you know, comes out, term, no crazy issues, et cetera. This baby's risk of acquisition is essentially zero. Now, let's say this mom was diagnosed in her fourth month or something. So there was some time in utero where she had viremia and the baby 
was in, in exposed to, to mom virus, there is some chance that there was in utero acquisition of infection. So let's say mom got on antiretroviral treatment and was on medicines and through delivery undetectable, there is a chance this baby may still come out having acquired HIV in utero, particularly highest risk if mom acquired the infection while she was pregnant. Because when you think about the initial acquisition of infection, there's a whopping increase in viral load as the virus gets established that then sort of goes, natural history goes down and then with ART goes down. So the load that gets to this baby is exceedingly high and with the, you know, with the blood supply to the placenta, et cetera. So that would be higher risk. Now, if mom got on no treatment at all and just came out and this happens not infrequently, mom delivered, no testing was done prior, previously and diagnosed in pregnancy or in, in intrapartum, that baby's risk with no antiviral treatment at all is anywhere between 25 and 40%, right? So that's relatively high. If mom AZT, you know, intrapartum AZT, IV for mom, um, without any other antiretroviral treatment, that mom's risk or baby's risk of acquisition goes down to like 13%. So the more you get on and the earlier you get on therapy and the more likely you are to have a viral load that's, that's suppressed, you're more likely to have a baby that's 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 uh, negative, which is why they really the push is to test moms early, really before you get pregnant. We should all be planning pregnancies and knowing we're going to have them, but that doesn't necessarily happen. Um, first trimester testing, and so you're catching it then. But then also third trimester testing. A lot of people they're pregnant. There's no reason to use condoms, et cetera, because they're pregnant already, right? They're not trying to prevent anything. And so pregnant women do have sex. <laughs> so you could acquire HIV during, during pregnancy. And so third trimester testing definitely and giving opportunities to intervene at some point during the pregnancy. So is it the early testing that we do now and the frequent testing, one of the things that have decreased our incidence of vertical transmission over time? What other interventions have we done to help decrease this? Yeah, so I think the, the culture... Uh, of testing just in general with, you know, everybody between the ages of 15 and 65 just getting an HIV test and knowing your status. So I think there's some more awareness of, of your HIV status, though it's not perfect. And depending on what population you deal with, it's actually, there, there are huge disparities in that. Uh, I think that's one. Two, definitely the testing that's happening for all pregnant women. I think, you know, uh, another piece. Antiretroviral treatment in general. So just people who are positive, getting tested, get, knowing your diagnosis, getting on treatment and being on treatment and, and having your viral load down when you're pregnant, huge uh, impact. And then just even PMTC or prevention of mother-to-child transmission, the the, the regimens that we use for that, either in utero so or intrapartum, I should say, AZT, and then regimens to the baby. So you can actually give nevirapine and AZT to the baby to actually decrease even in the scenario where comes out, mom got nothing, the baby can sort of basically have the equivalent of non-occupational post-exposure prophylaxis or PMTC for the baby to prevent acquisition. And what about C-section? Is that if a mom has an active viral load, is a C-section indicated? Does that decrease transmission as well? So yes, so that's there. There, that is one of the interventions. Thank you for for adding that. Yes, we, we, it's something that you know, with all we used to do so many more C sections because of the the vi viremia. Now we see it's really the exception rather than the rule that we're seeing moms that are just not suppressed at all. Um, and so usually, if the CDs, the, the viral loads above a thousand, that's when the conversation of C section comes in. And if mom has been on ART with a suppressed viral load for the duration of pregnancy, the standard of care is still intrapartum AZT infusion. And then, is it 
is does the baby get started on ART regardless of how mom's viral load has been during pregnancy? Yeah. So there's, there's, it's interesting because the, the, the guidelines say with mom's viral load less than a thousand, there's no need for interpartum AZT. There's some variability in how um, different institutions do that. You know, I, our institution had a switch from one uh, OB chief to another, and they went from not giving AZT in those settings to giving AZT and, you know, haven't quite <laughs> figured out, but there's some variability in that. But the guidelines do say you don't need to give the interpartum piece. Regardless, all the babies do get, if mom, the lowest risk moms, like the mom we talked about, that baby would still get four weeks of AZT that would baby would take orally twice a day. If the moms are higher risk or higher viral load, the baby may get more. So you get nevirapine and AZT and 3TC at treatment doses, actually um, triple treatment doses for, for six weeks. Um, there is some variability on that where you can either give the, the AZT definitely standard for all babies, but nevirapine either in three doses, right? Sort of like a one, two, three by, and done by the time the baby's a week of age um, with 3TC to prevent the development of nevirapine resistance or given the treatment dose, sort of the NPEP for the six weeks. So some of that's in flux and changing, um, but those are basically the, the standards. When you look at the guidelines, which is the guidelines I'm mentioning are the Department of Health and Human Services guidelines for prevention of child mother-child transmission. Those are the regimens that are listed in the high risk and the lower risk, et cetera. Um, so that's a basic gist of, of what you do. And presuming that we were able to perform all of these interventions that reduce the risk of transmission, or that we didn't, we slipped, how do we evaluate if vertical transmission has occurred? Yeah. So it's testing, testing, and more testing. And let me just start here and say the number one question that I get from pediatricians is, oh my God, I checked this baby and the baby is positive. They're three weeks old, the baby's positive, what do I do? And I, I first question I ask is, well, what test did you do? And usually they've done an antibody test and we know that maternal transferred antibody, so that, that you, thank you, you've confirmed that the mom is positive, but we already knew that. And so stop panicking, right? So it is a, a nucleic, nucleic acid test. And usually we do one at, at my institution for sure. We do one at birth because I want to know that in utero transmission already happened, right? So do that one at a birth and then one at 14 to 21 days, DNA or RNA PCR, and then at one to two months of age, and that usually determines if you can come off or on your prophylaxis and or go to treatment if the baby's positive, and then usually at four to six months of age. By four to six months of age, assuming there's no been no breast milk, or there's been no other potential introduction of virus to the baby, by four to six months of age, you can say that the baby is off antiretroviral medication and the testing is negative, that baby is negative. And usually around 18 months of age, I like to get an antibody just to confirm the maternal antibody has gone away and that baby is seroreverted and that I know for sure the baby's status is negative. And I like to do that because certainly we are now 30 plus years since the epidemic and we have many of the kids that were exposed have then either become positive themselves. And it's nice to be able to put, well, we knew that was not from an utero transmission and this is a new infection they acquired during adolescence or young adulthood. Just some peace of mind and some just making sure we know where, where things are. And so just so that I can, for my own sake, because this comes yeah. up for me in clinic a lot, sounds like two weeks, one month, and four months are the, on the early side of when we should be testing a viral load, either RNA or DNA to follow if the child has seroconverted. Right. And I like, and I also like the, the baseline 
when the baby comes out the chute. And, an yeah. Early, yeah, an early one. I, I, I never get to them that early, but but that yeah. an important distinction for sure, yeah. especially on, on, on yeah. newborn yeah. nursery. And you had mentioned at stopping the, the prophylaxis AZT, presuming the four-week test is negative. If the child does not have a four-week test, do you continue the AZT until the test or is it just four weeks and then let's get them tested as soon as we can? I, I do. And sometimes, you know, depending on your lab and all those things, if, if, if the baby has, you know, anemia or something else is going on and you're like, all right, I've got to stop the back gym and your risk is not really high. It's a really low risk mom, you may stop. But if it's a higher risk situation and you're concerned, you know, I definitely continue to make sure I have that test back and before I stop the, the prophylaxis. So one question I have, go, going back to what you were talking about, exposing of the baby at other times, like with breast milk and so forth. So we we don't we don't um, have mothers uh, breastfeed their children. Is this correct? And is this always the case? Yeah. So this is so interesting. If we had had this conversation three years ago, I'd put you know have a big X and say we absolutely don't do this. We are in the U.S. We don't breastfeed. You know, categorically across the board. Um, but I've been doing this long enough that I remember counseling, you know, women who had either had first babies in other parts of the world where exclusive breastfeeding is the recommendation by the World Health Organization because it's safer. Mixed feeding, meaning doing breast milk plus formula feeding in the setting where that water that you mix that formula may not be safe, actually increased the risk of HIV acquisition for, for, for babies. And so exclusive breastfeeding was the standard. And then we layered in antiretroviral treatment for life for everybody, right? So moms are on antiretroviral treatment, breastfeeding exclusively to reduce risk, and that was the norm. And so we had moms now who had delivered their first babies in other parts of the world coming to the U.S. and saying, wait a minute, I had my baby in Nigeria or Botswana or wherever else, and I was able to breastfeed, and here's what breastfeeding did for me, positive, this, all those things. Are you telling me here in the U.S. I can't breastfeed, <laughs> right? Right? So different standard. And you know, the lawyers and all these things thinking about it. And it, it was, it became a source of contention because for some moms, depending on the culture, et cetera, not breastfeeding is essentially disclosing that something is wrong with you. And that thing that could be wrong with you is HIV. People have had violence. People have had, there've been really negative outcomes set out of their social situation, et cetera. And so it may actually not be a safe thing for them to not breastfeed. And so particularly if we're not, we actually think when we're in a setting of U equals U or undetectable equal untransmittable in the sense of HIV in all other areas of transmission, why aren't these moms able to breastfeed? And so about three years ago, I may be misstating that number a bit, the guidelines, the US uh, DHHS guidelines came out and said, well, we should not breastfeed. Number one, the U.S. is not breastfeed. However, in situations where moms choose to breastfeed, we should go to a support risk reduction and actually support the moms into, breast, into breastfeeding successfully versus just tell them they shouldn't breastfeed. And that, you know, is, it's, it's quote unquote changed the game for a lot of places, you know, and you have to think about, we were, we were standardly saying in all cases and now, how do we incorporate that? And I'll tell you, it was amazing being a provider and having patients that I had taken care of before who had not breastfed and asking them what their thoughts were and having women just cry and say, wow, it, it, I felt like I never bonded to my child. And what did it mean to them to take that away from them? We had a whole ethics panel. We had our moms come back and testify and talk about. And so we've been supporting women through this with 
breast lactation, neonatology, OBGYN, pediatrics, pizza, HIV, and HIV, and supported to date about 12 moms breastfeeding. And if knock on wood, that's wood knocking, so far have not had any um, be positive, but have seen really, you know, impacts on depression or less postpartum depression and just the moms just being really appreciative. And so it's something we're going to see more of, I think, in the U.S. Um, and certainly in the U.K. has guidelines, Canada has guidelines. So it's now starting to be something um, that uh, I think we'll see more of. Thanks for asking the question. Wow. And and just to confirm, in those cases, the mixed feeding, though, is discouraged because that actually decreases or that only in situations where the water quality is questionable. Yeah. So we reality is we probably don't know, right? But we, for purity's sake, we still say exclusive breastfeeding. We try to get moms, you know, exclusive breastfeeding. If you're going to do something, you know, rice cereal or something like that, it's usually after six months of age that we're doing that. So we're exclusive breastfeeding until six months. And we really are encouraging moms to wean off by that time um, to then to, to go to other things. We, for the first time, have one of the moms who's gone a bit longer and just, you know, careful monitoring of viral loads, et cetera. Reality is in the, for example, UK guidelines, it's two, up to two years of age in some other parts of the world. They're, they're breastfeeding in resource-limited settings to two years of age or so. And so still tweaking that out. But right now, our guidance has been exclusive breastfeeding six months. Let's try to get it <laughs> weaned. And that might be our, our, our paranoia. And we'll see as more data emerges how we can do that. This is great. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Thank you so much. Um, for infants who are breastfeeding, do they remain on ART for the duration of their time breastfed? Yeah. So, and I, I, and this is all hot off the presses stuff, right? And not really, but this is just that, you know, in, in resource limited settings and moms by definition must stay on antiretroviral treatment. So that's, this is not a case where a mom is now coming off antiretroviral treatment, her viral load's going up. We know that that's a recipe for transmission. So moms are on antiretroviral therapy. The babies are on at least single dose nevirapine, daily nevirapine, I should say. So they're on something um, to continue. Not in all cases, though. Some some guidelines actually the babies come off of antiretroviral treatment and just moms on 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 ART. We have um, maintained the babies on at minimum six weeks of their treatment dose for prevention of, of transmission, and then have gone to nevirapine daily through the duration of breastfeeding. You know, there's been some debates with now we're doing too much, <laughs> and admittedly, you know, some of this is the data is emerging, and I think we've been more com most comfortable in terms of doing antiretroviral treatment for both, but there are some guidelines in the U.S. or in parts of the world where they do not necessarily give babies antiretroviral treatment throughout that period of breastfeeding. It's a good question. Now, the important thing to talk about here, though, is then the testing we talked about before, the 14 to 21, 1 to 2, 4 to 6. Now you have to extend that after cessation of breastfeeding, and then if there's babies on ART, some cessation of the ART, and then making sure that you're, you're testing to, to make sure the baby hasn't acquired it subsequent to that, weeks after that, and, and extending the testing out. This is great. And so let's let's keep going. Let's say, you know, unfortunately, in this patient, we're unable to reach mom early in her prenatal period, and we do confirm a neonatal HIV infection uh, has occurred. How do you think about approaching uh, family support, supporting the family, making uh, at the time of an infant HIV diagnosis? Yeah. So I think the the biggest thing um, to do in in my mind is recognize that you're walking into a scenario where people have many misconceived notions of what me having HIV means, right? And so 
for some families, they have either had family members who have had HIV and have died from HIV. They're remembering the, the cachectic um, faces from, from whatever movie or whatever documentary they've, they've had. And so that diagnosis of HIV equals death to them. And so understanding that and recognize that they're not going to hear anything more beyond my child has HIV. Anything else you say beyond that, trying to explain lots of things, et cetera, are going to be forgotten. And that's the only thing they're, they're, they're going to remember. Um, remembering that that walking into the room and whatever you say and how you deliver that news is going to be the, a defining moment for them for the rest of their and their child's lives. So I do more listening than talking. So, you know, you walk in, and many times the, the team will ask you to make that diagnosis because they've never done that before. And so you walk in, you sit down. I'd never give that diagnosis standing. You never give the diagnosis of the phone. You sit down with the family and then you start and you just, you say the news and then you stop. Do more listening than talking. And then do you know what that means? Then you talk, you listen, then you talk. It means your child has a virus. We have treatment, we have this, we have that, I, all of that. But sometimes that's all you give. And then you come back the next day. You just keep coming back, right? And one thing I always leave in the schools, whether it's an infant that I've diagnosed and am telling, or a teenager, I always leave before, before I leave the room, I say, I want you to remember, what, I, what you remember for what I say, I just want you to remember the words, you are going to be okay. She's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. You're going to be okay come back again and you start again. Never, never think that they remembered what you said the day before. When we talked last, we told you that baby had HIV. What did you understand? What questions did you have? Right? And then we go through and we talk little by little. What, what's the plan for today? Today you're going to breathe, right? We're going to start this. Today you're going to breathe <laughs> and you're going to be okay. And, you know, I, I, over time, and now I have had the opportunity to, getting old now, I've been quote unquote in the game since 2003 when I started my fellowship. And some of the patients I started seeing in a fellowship, I still see today, have seen them, you know, from their being children to be now adolescents and or now young adults to their own kids. And I've diagnosed people who were that at that point have seen them be now adults and have given diagnosis in that time frame. And I say, you know, what, what do you remember that day? I remember you told me I was going to be okay. And if that's all they hang on to that day, that's okay. And then we, we go at it and we keep, you know, educating, et cetera. But it's tough. You know, I think knowing where people are coming from is important. When you see the tears, you know, sometimes it's just listening and saying, well, what, what, is, what are the tears for? People are mourning all kinds of things. My child will never have kids. Actually, a child can have kids. I have many of them have kids that are, my child will never, ah, actually, you know. And I say to my teenagers, this is not going to be your excuse for you not to go to college. I want you to remember that. This is not going to be an excuse for you not to do X, Y, and Z, right? Because there's so much stigma and there's so much that we layer onto that diagnosis that I think it's, it's unarming it. It is just a pill. It is just a thing. It's just one thing that's about you right? It doesn't have to define you. This is so great and it's so applicable, I feel like, to every disease, major disease process. I I, right? I already feel uh, relieved. Um, <laughs> I, 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 your patients are, are clearly very lucky to have you. I think this is a, Thank a, you. a, a great approach. And looking at um, the medical components as well, once we've gotten the, the family on board, they're ready to get started, how does that conversation go? Are you starting the child on medication? How do you choose the medication? Is it different between pediatrics and medicine? How do you kind of set the roadmap for them going forward as far as their exposure to the healthcare system? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, and we'll start with the, the infant first, because I think it, it's, it is 
the same, but a little bit different as, as um, kids get older. So I think with the infant, we're starting as soon as we can. And I think what's exciting um, is that I used to just be able to say, we got one medicine, put your kid on, <laughs> right? It, you know, the, the classes of medicine for that were available for pediatrics were, were not the same or were not as broad as what was available for adults. And now I certainly can offer families treatment that actually is oftentimes similar to what the adults are, are on. But usually the babies are going to start on some sort of liquid and some of it's nastier than others, just being completely honest. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's two medicines from one class and one from another class and twice a day medication. And that's what they take. And they come back about monthly or every two months. And we're adjusting based on weight. And we're checking labs. I mean, and it's, it's, if you weren't used to the medical system, you're in it now. Now, it's a little easier for infants because we see them so frequently anyway, right? But I, I guess I was saying that the class of medicine are now, there are more options and in terms of what's available, less nasty medicines. We can get to once a day regimens more quickly. Um, as you're watching the weight tick up and as the weight increases, we can then modify and make that easily for fam- easier for families. Um, but certainly, um, I was making the point that from adult medicine to peds medicines, we are definitely the timeline or the lag between when things were available for adults. You know, the early days of treatments, we had moms literally saying, I'm going to give my kid my medicine because you don't have anything for my baby. And that lag has, has de- decreased significantly where we have more options for kids um, available um, more quickly than they were before. So... Yeah, so it's it's it is it's blood draws, it's visits to the doctors, it's adjusting medicines, it's dealing with some side effects, so both babies don't and, and infants don't have too many, and it's just wrapping your brain around this baby's gonna be okay. I never forget to talk about things like you know it's okay to kiss your baby, it's okay if your hand gets in the poop or anything like that, because it's amazing how many families have these, and I say archaic, but they're not that far in the past. These these fears about am I is my two year old going to catch HIV for my baby? Am I going to get right the, these things? I can't I have to feed them from a separate spoon, etc. And families still have that fear, and addressing all of that, not taking anything for granted that they actually don't know some of those things, right? And just normalizing it, saying, okay, you hug that baby, kiss that baby, right? It's okay. So as a, as a general pediatrician, yeah. when I'm following these patients as well, what are the things that I need to be looking out for on like their well-child cares? Am I, am I doing anything specially different? Am I doing different vaccines? What, what, am, what am I doing from a general peds perspective? Yeah. So, I mean, I think certainly this is where the, the, the CD4 count and stuff, knowing those, those categories that I said I could care less about, but knowing if in where they fit in in terms of immunosuppression, because certainly the live vaccines you're going to do differently, right? But other than that, you treat them like a regular baby. They're, they're, they're on treatment. They're doing well. They're, you're following viral loads or working with a peds ID person that, that's doing that. Really, I'm happy to handle antiretroviral treatment and all that. And you can handle all the baby stuff. I don't want to see the colds. I don't want want to see those things. Treat them normal, right? And the reality is I have some parents that because of where they live, et cetera, there's so much concern about stigma that they see their general pediatrician and they don't even disclose the HIV because they're so concerned about what happens. And as long as everything's okay from an HIV standpoint, we just manage it like that because unfortunately we're not at a place where stigma is, is, is non-existent. And we've had families where they've, they've had repercussions in terms of disclosure. HIPAA isn't always HIPAA, unfortunately. 
But yes, for you, so, follow the baby, <laughs> have your, have a dialogue with your Pete's ID person who's manage, managing the HIV. And really, you're as long as they're CD4 count and they, we know that they're immuno, immunologic okay, you're not worried about them having PCP as their explanation for what's going on. Um, what changes in routine pediatric care can you anticipate as the child gets older? Is there anything that's different? Is there starting to get back to school age or um, kind of our adolescent well child visits? Yeah. So and we're still focusing on the on the kid that's acquiring HIV. So a perinatally acquired kid or one who gets it from transfusion or what have you, I th- which is rare here in the US, but you know, does still happen in some places. I think that as the kid gets older, you know, certainly the things that that I oftentimes start to think about are, are just is disclosure, 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 um, and trying to make sure that I engage the family around disclosure, what that means, when that looks like, what it looks like, all those things, because recognize, particularly in in, in cases where the it's a, a familial diagnosis, not a kid who's who's adopted and then is the only one that's positive. That disclosure of the, the status to the child is then the family's disclosure of their HIV. And so disclosure can mean many, many, many things. Um, and so certainly in terms of, and I, I put that first because that, that oftentimes impacts disclosure we know or non-disclosure can impact depression, can impact non-adherence to medication. The kids are, are taking medicines, they don't understand why, they start to push back as they try to be normal adults, et cetera, et cetera, or you know, teens, et cetera. And so disclosure is such an important issue. On average happens around 10 years of age, there are six-year-olds who know, and then there are 12-year-olds that families like, I'm getting ready to tell them, but I'm not sure how they're going to be able to do because they don't know when to shut their mouth or whatever, things like that, right? Um, and so it's very individual in terms of what a family and a, and a, and a, and a, and a child and, and thinking and the dynamics of the, of the social situation, et cetera. But certain disclosure is the, the thing that we're always talking about, and I encourage families to do it as early as, a, as feasibly possible for the child because of all of the positive impacts of disclosure. Now, in terms of, of treatment, let's go there. There are less adjustments and medications that happen by weight, et cetera. Many of the regimens are now, once you get to 25 kilos or 35 kilos, you're basically on the same tablet as an adult is. And now it's one tablet, one pill a day regimens that you can then take whatever period of time. So that's exciting. It's simplified, much easier. The number of times or how frequently you come to the doctor can potentially change. So, you know, from every month when you were younger to every three months, to every six months, so spacing that out a bit um, can happen. So less sort of frequent um, engagements. I think certainly in terms of vaccines, et cetera, it's all the regular childhood stuff. It's all the regular things that you're doing to keep kids healthy. The same things that happen that 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 are in play for HIV positive kids, their HPV, their ringococcus, all those things, it's it's essentially the same and making sure that they're adjusted in life otherwise. This last piece is really important because I think um, in the 80s and 90s, certainly before we had great antiviral treatment, many of our kids who were living with HIV, we just said, we just want you to live, right? And there was not necessarily emphasis on their mental health or on making sure they did well in school and all these things. And now I'm seeing kids who are older and they're like, okay, I, I'm alive, but I didn't do this or I didn't do that. I didn't do that. What am I alive for? And so really making sure we think 360 and managing the care of, of, of young people um, early and making sure they're healthy later. So not all the Burger King and everything they get to eat because we know that their comorbidities to come if we don't take care of that as well. 
one thing that I am always incredibly impressed with ID docs for and am very intimidated by is HIV medications. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have kind of a way that you categorize them or think about them um, that you kind of explain to families like the NRTIs and NNRTIs? <laughs> So the way I the way I explain it to, to families is think about your house, right? And I say when you have your alarm system, you have an alarm on the door, on the windows, right? On the back door. And so your medicines, think about it as you've got your door locked down, your window doc locked down, and you need at least three things locked down because that's the way the burglar gets in. So if you just have the front door blocked and one window blocked, what's gonna happen? Oh, they can come into the back door. Right. So I say your Valtegravir or your Dolutegravir has got your front door, your FTC has got your side window and your other things got your other window. Right. And so it's like boom, boom, boom. So if you go to the pharmacy and you get your front door medicine and not your back door and your back window, are you covered? No, Dr. Igo, I'm not covered. Right. So. Right. So I think about like that. So you not taking one of those leaves you exposed in some way. And then the virus is like the burglar that comes in and gets you stuff. And so you don't want anybody to get your stuff. So that's how I explain it, right? So it's, it's, it's locking up different things. Now, we're at a point where it used to be you had to get all your three medicines from the pharmacy and make sure you get all three. Now we have increasingly combination medication. So you just need that, that lock for the front door, the lock for the front door so people don't get in, right? Um, but that's how I explain it. And each of those medicines, each of those classes deals or addresses a different aspect of your house. And so they've got to work together to keep your body safe. I like it. Good imagery. <laughs> sounds, sounds like an infographic to me. I like it. I like it. it does. It does. My other one, so that just now we're doing infographic. Yeah, no, let's do it. Let's do it. The, the one I always do is about your, your CD4 cells, your T cells being like your bodyguards. And so, you know, many of the kids I know really well, I'm like, all right, who's your favorite person? Well, I know for one lady, one young lady, it's, it's Beyonce. I'm like, does Beyonce have fewer bodyguards or more bodyguards? Oh, she's got a lot of bodyguards could block her beehive. All right. So you want more T-cells to protect. For my 10-year-old, his idol is Messi. All right. So if you want to protect Messi from, he's from Colombia originally. You want to protect Messi from the big crowd in the stadium. Well, he more bodyguards, Dr. A. And so we got to get your bodyguards up, right, by taking your medication. So it's just right. meeting people where they, where they are and in a way they can understand. I like it. And they sound like very... Just helpful ways to talk to kids, ways to meet them as they're trying to wrap their minds around a new diagnosis. Right. And I, you know, and it's, it's important because you said, how does it change as, as kids get older? One of the things that I find that's really interesting is that people assume, particularly as our young people, you know, age up and it's like, well, you're 15 or 16 and you've had this your whole life. Like, why don't you already know? Well, they may have heard it when they were six or seven, et cetera. And then people took it for granted that they understood and they didn't necessarily revisit it again and again. And what does it really mean? And, you know, you may have taken, you may have heard that diagnosis before you under, you took sex ed in school and the way they talked about it, right? So the, there are ways that you're, you then recognize, wait a minute, oh, that's what I have, right? Or worst case scenario, you hear about your diagnosis or your disclose after you've been in sex ed in school, you've heard what all those kids had to say and formed your own negative opinions about HIV, and then you've got that, right? You see how that could potentially impact how you then internalize the negative things about 
the disease within yourself. And so we've got to be thinking, all right, so when did they hear? What did they hear? How are we averting? How are we dealing? And revisiting it again and again and again, right? Uh, this is great. I love the imagery and I think this is wonderful. And so for, um, also Martha, why don't you, you hit our, will you introduce our next case? Absolutely. Um, so we have a 16 year old adolescent boy who presents to the emergency room with a headache, diarrhea, nausea, diffuse myalgias, monospot is negative on social history. He says that he's sexually active with multiple partners. He estimates he uses condom 75% of the time. Um, and so this scenario could lead us to a lot of different diagnoses, but, um, maybe one thing is when should we have acute retroviral syndrome on our differential? Um, and is that what it looks like, are there other ways that it can look? Yeah. So the answer is we should always have acute retroviral syndrome on our differential. Um, so, you know, since it's in a CME, I mean, acute retroviral syndrome is essentially when your, your body first acquires HIV and there's this rapid increase in viral load and your body has basically a response, like a flu-like response to this, this illness. As lymphadenopathy happens, your, your body essentially is literally all the inflammatory markers, et cetera, are revved up. And you feel like you have the flu and you can look just like this kid. In fact, I've seen this kid, right? And about if you ask people retrospectively, about 60, 70% of people who sometime within a year or so before they got their official diagnosis, they'll say, you know what, doctor, I really, I had that flu in July last year. Like, hmm, you had the flu in July, huh? Did you, right? They present for care. People say, oh, you got a viral syndrome. You don't test them and you send them home. They're highly contagious. They feel terrible. I always laugh and say it's a perfect time to have flu sex because your partner comes over and takes care of you, right? <laughs> highly, highly contagious, right? And so we should have that on a differential, right? And, and, you know, particularly when we're young people, we may not interface with the healthcare system often. We go for our sports physicals. We go for when we broke or break our hand or something happens. So this is a missed opportunity to actually diagnose this young person and then intervene um, in either transmission, but also the, the the decline that can happen in CD4, et cetera, over time. So should always be in your mind. He fits the, the criteria for getting tested, right? He's in between 15 and 64, right? He should get tested and definitely should be on your mind, particularly when the explanation you have is July, your monospot's negative, but why does he feel the way he does? HIV should be on, on your mind at some point. I, I feel that within the last year, I wonder how many of these patients end up getting COVID testing instead. And they're like, oh, I don't have COVID. <sighs> And then, like, in the next couple of years, as as it comes about and we find HIV, like, I remember when I had, like, this illness, yep. I thought I had COVID, I was negative, but then it went away. And so, I've, you know, I, I wonder if we're going to see that come up, you know, in the next couple of years, too. Yeah. You know, COVID has, I, as an ID doc, it's been so frustrating because, uh so many things where you, you're looking, you're called in, why does this person have X, Y, and Z? And people are stopping, well, the COVID is negative, they don't have COVID. And like, we still have all the rheumatologic issues, we still have endocarditis, we still have all those other things that cause people to fever. And, you know, COVID has, has caused um, a tunneling on, on diagnoses, right? And, and I think you're right, I think we, we may end up missing some things or, or some have some delays. You know, in my clinical, my clinic, we had had 14 kids present newly diagnosed within this past year, COVID, which is, yeah. Wow. Right. So, and can we talk about making the diagnosis of acute retroviral syndrome? Because 
I know that um, I feel like my teaching was always it has to be the viral load because of the window where it might not have an antibody yet. But now with this fourth generation, the window's so narrow that actually one of my first uh, within the first two weeks of starting as an attending, I wanted to order a viral load because I felt this person had an uh, uh, unprotected encounter, had flu-like symptoms, and the uh, lab wouldn't let me at Cash Slack. They said, no, 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 you have to use the fourth generation. I was like, well, I want to check for a Q retroviral syndrome. And they said, well, you should bring it back in two weeks and do a, a antibody test. What's the, what's the new, what's the practice? What is it? It does sound like the, the window is narrow. So this isn't a uh, throwing shade at the uh, uh, cash lock lab, but <laughs> how, how do we make this diagnosis? Yeah. So, you know, good point. You're talking about the fourth generation test, which is an ant combination antigen antibody test, right? Which the antigen P24, et cetera, can be detected as early as seven to 10 days, right? So you're testing that and the testing antibody, which can develop later. And so certainly we can, you know, 10 days or so after someone has had their exposure, you could potentially expect that the fourth generation can start to detect. Again, the further out you are, the more sensitive that testing is, right? And then the fourth generation follows up with a quali qualitative viral load test in the case of the, the antigen antibody is, is positive. So it's sort of a two-step thing. Now, Certainly, if your suspicion is still high after your negative fourth generation, I would recommend you get a viral load test, right? If you, you know, you, you may be, yes, you can bring them back in a week or so, but now they've had a chance to go home. They've done, you know, they've more ability to transmit, et cetera. And so and if you really are that suspicious, you think someone has ARS or acute retroviral syndrome, you can and should get the bus. So you were right. I misspoke on the HIV testing. Just want to make sure it's 13 to 64 and not 15. I kept saying 15 for some reason. That's because the, there's a little bit of a difference in the guidelines between the U.S. Preventive Health Service and CDC, but I like the 13 to 64. So we're going to stick with that. You got it. 13. 13 to get an HIV test. Terrified. <laughs> So we mentioned around the age of 13, we want to start uh, considering HIV testing. Um, can you talk to a little bit about who we're evaluating for testing for HIV and then talking about who would be good candidates for PrEP? What is PrEP? When does that conversation come up in a primary care clinic? Yeah. Oh, you know, all my favorite things. So I think one of the things that I am always careful about um, doing is saying, well, you not that you said this, but you fit these criteria and this is why I'm testing you. Because then we caveat that, right? So um, then people say, well, I'm not, I'm not having lots of sex. I'm not this, I'm not that. If you just say, you know what? Like we couch everything else. We're gonna test your blood count. We're gonna do this. We're gonna give you your HPV. Well, just make it normal. And I'm gonna get your HIV test. So then when you do it, it just becomes normal. When we start saying, um, I'm gonna check your this. I'm gonna give you your tetanus and then do you think you need an HIV test? You see, how, you see how that is? And it's like, well, what is it about me? You're giving me the side eye and then I, I, right? So we just normalize it. Now, certainly in terms of HIV testing and, and likelihood of, of positivity, we do see as you get older for adolescents who acquire HIV, we see that, that as you get older, 18, 19, you're more likely to start to see the more bang for your buck in terms of testing positivity. That being said, I've certainly diagnosed 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds, et cetera. And so we, that's why it's just normalized. And don't try to say, I'm going to test this kid and not that kid and say, we do HIV testing annually in 13 and 64, and that's what we're going to do, right? And so I just make it part of their normal, just like making part of the normal uh, discussion time alone with that adolescent starting at age 10 or so, so that they know this is their time to talk to you. And, and even when you know they're not having sex, talking about 
So when they, about sex, and if there are any questions, you let me know, and this is our time, that when they actually are starting to, are there, you're going to be a trusted person to be able to engage and then, and then and be able to tell them. And getting comfortable fixing your face in terms of dealing with and asking a, a sexual history and being prepared for the results, right, <laughs> of what they're going to say and, and how to approach it. So it's normalizing it. It's saying we do it for all our patients and we're just going to do it for you and then do it. Now, in terms of PrEP, right, so which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which currently there are two medications, um, tenofovir, FTC, amtricetamine, in the form of Truvada, blue pill, and then tenofovir alafinamide, FTC, which is amtricetamine, right, which yeah. is in the form of Discovi. So single pill, once a day, reduces HIV acquisition by 95 plus percent if you take it regularly. The TAF or FTC or Discovi is not for individuals who engage in vaginal sex, so not for women. That's something we, well, they're the studies to come, um, but definitely approved down to 35 kilos or higher. So the most adolescents can have this. Does not need to be prescribed by an ID doc, does not need to be prescribed by a specialist, can be prescribed by a regular general practitioner. In fact, there are even pharmacists that are trying to do this because we there's a big gap between who needs PrEP and who's taking PrEP. And in that gap, we're getting acquisitions and getting people acquiring HIV. So um, certainly, if you ask the question, you know, sexually active, sexually active in Baltimore probably gets your PrEP, but <laughs> depending on what the, the prevalence of HIV in the community, sexually active, having unprotected anal intercourse, vaginal intercourse, you, people who inject drugs, all have been populations that have been shown to benefit from, from PrEP, um, taking PrEP daily. Exciting, um, I think in the next few years, we now have injectable PrEP where you can take a shot every eight weeks. Um, not, ready, not ready for prime time yet, not FDA approved yet, but we've had the studies to show even more effective than oral PrEP because as you probably guessed it, adherence for PrEP is terrible, right? So the from the saying you want PrEP, Prescribe, your provider actually prescribing it to you, taking it, then to staying on it can be exceedingly, the, the continuum of the cascade is, is a steep one. Um, and in the fall, when your adherence levels go lower, people are at higher risk for HIV acquisition with the youngest ones, the 15 to 17 year olds in the studies, having the highest incidence in those studies. And so this is an opportunity to intervene. And you referring to that ID doc who sees them six months later provides a window for them to actually acquire HIV. So one question I have is, uh if we have time to go over this, is when we initiate PrEP, what type of lab work do I need to do before I start PrEP therapy and how? what do I do to monitor that? Because I think that's where a lot of people, especially uh, pediatricians who are doing some, uh, who may not do as many adolescents as they as normal, you know, they may not feel as comfortable doing a lot of testing. How, how do we start and uh, continue to follow it? Yeah, so good question. I mean, I think the, the labs that you really are, are wanting to make sure you know, you want to know somebody's HIV status, right? So now the HIV status should not necessarily, you want to do testing, but there's some same day prep where you, you give them their dose of prep because they came in, you started and you get the HIV tested the same day. Because sometimes if you send them out, you miss that opportunity to start because they don't come back because they're not even lost their nerve. Them taking one or two days of Truvada or, or Discovi and then finding out they're positive is not the end of the world, right? So just to say that, so don't do a missed opportunity. But you want to know their lab function. So particularly their, their creatinine, 
right? Because um, there can be cases where there, there's a minor increase in the in the creatinine. So you want to know what their baseline is. And you know, over time, there can be some slight decrease in that GFR that improves once they come off of, of, of the doctor. So knowing that is, is important. Again, most adolescents are healthy and, and don't have issues, but you do want to know that. You want to know their hepatitis B status, right? And for adolescents, again, less of an issue because we are you know, in the age where most of our young people have now gotten a Hep B series and so that's not an issue. And that's because the, the drugs that, that are used for PrEP also treat hepatitis B. And so you want to be careful about coming on off and on those drugs because you can see flares in your hepatitis B. You want to make sure they're vaccinated for other things they can get, Hep C, et cetera. But that's really it. That's it. And then, of course, SDI screening because you want to know that you want to treat a set. Now, there's recommendation you follow them every three months to get you know, HIV testing, SDI testing, creatinine. That's basically it. Awesome. <laughs> Easy enough. And I, a question about what, the guidelines recommend bringing up the discussion with about initiating prep with anyone with high risk sexual behaviors. And uh, absolutely that I think that that is a challenge. And I would love an expert opinion on on what is high risk? Is it um, is it based on a certain number of partners? Is it very much based on the patient's risk aversion? Is it when the provider feels that they're starting to judge the person's sexual behaviors, it just seems like it opens up to not a lot of objective help. And as a as a lowly primary care doctor, I, I turn to you. I need help. What is what's high risk? So I hate that term. I'm like I hate that term because I've actually asked. I, I do this because I do. And when I've given talks, et cetera, I ask everybody to raise their hand in the room if you're having sex with a high risk partner. Right. Nobody raises their hand, right? If they raise their hand, you're like, wow, who's your partner, right? No, nobody raises their hand. And so when we say these things, we, people then, they, they, they think, well, I, I'm not a bad person. I'm not having. So I, I try not to do that. Are they having sex? How do they like to have sex, right? I don't like to use condoms. All right, now tell me about your partners. I meet my partners online or Jagged or Grinder, et cetera. I don't like to use condoms. I'm a bottom. I'm so you start and I had a gonorrhea or chlamydia, or I look in the record, gonorrhea or chlamydia two months ago, syphilis. That's right. That's that's higher risk. But just saying I'm I'm having sex, I don't like to use condoms, I, I am interested, I think I I think I might need prep. I'm not it's not my job to convince you not to take prep. It's like, okay, well, then let's get you on on board and prep. If you have somebody who is, you know, I use condoms 100% of the time, but then you look and they had gonorrhea and chlamydia. Let's talk about perhaps you don't like to use condoms and that's okay. Not shaming somebody. You know, how do you like to have sex, Dr. A? I really don't like to use condoms. All right, bet. So let's work on how we can keep you safe and how you like to use sex, how you like to have sex versus giving them this sort of narrow view of this is going to be okay. They tell you the answer that you want to hear or they think you want to hear and there you leave feeling, I talked about sex with them and they're fine and they don't get what they need. Right. So the, the, the question or the answer to you, Justin, is, you know what, fix your face, ask the question in an open way. Right. What do you like to do? What are you interested in doing? All right. So you, you, you like to or you don't. If they really Dr. A, I, Dr. J, Dr. J, I use condoms 100 percent of the time. I won't take a pill. I will then maybe prep isn't for you. Right. But it's, it's being open and having the dialogue with people and, and bringing it up and making sure they know and what the benefits may potentially be in, in an open ended way. It may not be today, but they are going to remember that you talked about it and then talk about it with you next time. Love it. One of the things that I love uh, that seems to normalize prep is I know on some of these dating apps on Grinder now, I think mm -hmm. there's a there's a feature that it says you can put if you're on prep or not. Yep. Which I don't know if there's negative consequences to that that I haven't really thought out, but I think that that's great. I think it's normalizing yeah. prep, and I feel like it's bringing it up in the conversation more and more. 
Yeah. No, I think it's really great. I mean, I think the, you know, what was bad when the first prep first came out, there was this sort of stigma with it, right? So there was like, okay, well, if you're on prep, then you must really be out there, right? And so people didn't want to be associated because you were like a quote unquote Truvada whore or something that you were on prep so you can do all this stuff. And I, I do think some of the commercials and some of the messaging and definitely Grinder and Jack having that there, I think is great. Now there's a lot of lying on Jacked and Grinder about whether you're a prep or not. Mm. So I wouldn't use that as your, mm. oh yeah, that means that you're safe. So I don't need to strap up in that case, right? So just to put it in for Fair. Yeah. <laughs> this may not be something that uh, is something that you found, but I'm wondering like, how do I advertise and let my patients know in the primary care setting? Like I want to prescribe prep. Yeah. Um, but I, um, really don't have people coming to me saying like, oh, I want to get on prep. Like, how do you identify and let people know that this is a population that you want to serve? Yeah. So there are, there are a couple ways. One, they're on the internet, but yeah, they're actually a find a prep provider. There are some literally finders where you can make sure your practice is located on there and you can put your zip code in and it will pop up literally a GPS enable who are the providers around you that prescribe prep. So there's some ways of publicizing that. There are little things that you, little symbols, little sticker on your, on your, on your lapel that says we do prep, posters in your lobby, talk in your handouts that are available, letting youth know on your questionnaires, you know, either, do you want to hear about prep? Just making sure that it's something available. So if they don't know about it, they ask you, but then you also just make it, I'm one of those, you know, blue provider, a little pill on your, sh what have you. So it's just, it's word of mouth. It's, it's publicity, it's posters, it's everything. I got to put myself out there. You got to put yourself <laughs> out there. <laughs> but then the find a, I think it's called find a prep or prep provider or what have you. Literally, you can put your zip and your location and it will show you the providers that are around you that, that, that prescribe prep. So I'm not sure the logistics of how to get on there, but that's what I would make sure um, that one of the ways that you can make sure you're on there. Makes a ton of sense. Cool. I'm on that for, for buprenorphine and, you know, get folks come into our mm -hmm. clinic for that. And mm -hmm. yeah, you should there definitely you yep. put it out there. Bingo. Um, cause I know this is something that you're passionate about and as all of us are med peds docs here, we're mm -hmm. passionate about transition yeah. and, um, when does the process of transition from pediatric to adult care begin and how do you approach it for your patients? How does that approach differ to meet people where they are? Yeah. The transition to adult care starts at infancy. Right. And I mean, really, you know, particularly when you, you talk about HIV, that transition, you are modeling and preparing really early. So even before that child knows their diagnosis, you already are the way you talk, the way you engage, the way you talk about meds, turning the computer screen to them, showing them, et cetera, engaging them so that they're not passive consumers of healthcare, but they're actually participating. That transition starts then. Now, in terms of the actual transition and the formal things, you know, many clinics have stages and phases at 10 to 12, make sure this. It, it really it depends on what your protocol is. For me, it's at all phases. When I'm saying, hey, you know, we're going to order the medicines and, and show the young person and the parent the medicines and making sure they're engaged and telling them at 13, now they should start calling in. I'll let them watch you call for the pharmacy for the refills. Show, educate them on this. Ask them this. You know, it's literally involving all, all, all at all stages, making sure they understand their diagnosis, what it means, and they can explain it, and not deferring to mom. Changing the seating in the room where mom doesn't or dad doesn't sit next to you, but the kids sit next to you, and then the parent sits across the room or sits on the other side of them. So making sure they recognize that 
they are the ones in the driver's seat. So they have that ownership. So I think what happens is at 18, all of a sudden they're in the driver's seat, like, but wait a minute, I never sat here before. And then we're wondering why don't they understand and why aren't they doing that? I think in terms of formal transition to adult care, it really does depend on where your institution, how your institution does it. In some parts of the world, adult care starts at 15, right? So here, you know, some it's 18, some places 21, some places up to 25 where you have to go to adult care. So depending on where you are, the actual formal transition or transfer to, to adult care happens. Um, how you deal with that, it's multi-stage, right? Or multi-factorial, um, right? I think there's the, the medical part, which I've been talking about, but that also involves the social part and making sure all those pieces, the more 360 you think about it, the better they're going to be more likely to transition effectively to adult care. And then making sure that when they go to the other side, um, not the dark side, just the other side, that there's a feedback loop. So you know where they went, how they went, and, and, and there's integration and communication between the clinics and the both sides that are supporting these young people as they go over um, early, often, but really from, from infancy and, and preparing them to the other. I love it. This is great. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. I, I feel like we, we learned a lot. I, I learned a lot. This is great. We, we covered from, from this is a perfect kind of uh, bringing it back to the beginning from neonatal to transition to adult care. Um, from diagnosis to acute symptoms. What are some of the main take-home points that you have for some of our listeners, whether they're med students, residents, attendings um, in pediatrics? What, what are the big things that you want to make sure people go away knowing about pediatric HIV? Yeah, so I think the big take-homes are, are number one, pediatric HIV is still here. Um, I think there's a misconception that it's we're, we're done with it and, and we move on. It's still here, but I think people are surviving and thriving and, and the care they get and the how well engaged and informed their providers are is critical to that. Um, I think certainly for HIV itself, we are at a point where there's been a huge transition evolution in HIV care where most people who are born with HIV and those who are diagnosed as adolescents will live normal lives. And our, our goal as providers is to optimize those lives in terms of their HIV care, but also all the other things, decreasing comorbidities, et cetera. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a great field to be in. It's a perfect one for, for med peds. I've loved taking care, I always say, from the cradle and trying to prevent the grave. Um, <laughs> um, but really something that I've been passionate about. I'm really happy to have shared my experiences and some of my wisdom with you all today. Thank you for the, the, the dialogue today. Well, thank you so much for coming on and educating us. Thank you. I, I feel inspired. Uh, I'm uh, <laughs> no, I'm glad this has been a lot of fun. This has been a lot well, fun. we're grateful for, for having you. Is there anything while you're here, is there anything that you'd like to plug or any resources that you think are worth sharing with our listeners to, to check out? Um, and I think certainly uh, my biggest plug, uh, particularly there are probably a lot of not necessarily IED docs, but general practitioners and um, MedPeds providers that are out there and regular, all providers. And PrEP is not a subspecialty. PrEP is not a subspecialty thing. I, I feel as if there are so many missed opportunities when people present for care and PrEP is not discussed um, or addressed. And then the next time they interface with the medical system, it's an HIV diagnosis. We still have about 40,000 people diagnosed with HIV every year. And we have huge disparities in PrEP use and, and we can interrupt that. And so as we aim to end the epidemic, it's not on the backs of HIV docs. It's really on all of us um, to make sure a modality that can prevent um, acquisition gets out there. Thank you, Dr. Adri. So, thank you so much. This was perfect. This is wonderful. Um, 
really grateful for your time. Well, I'd love to see it when it's done. Share it with me so I could uh, you got it. laugh at myself. <laughs> you got it. You got um, it. Take care, guys. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Check out our show notes at thecribsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our knowledge food formula feeds mailing to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, any podcast player. Just uh, tell us how great we are or send us an email that's uh, to thecribsiders at gmail.com if you have constructive feedback, because we're always trying to grow and learn. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Martha Brucato. Thank you for joining us. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. Thank you. I've been Martha Brucato. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. Thank you and good night. Bye. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. BCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.